Hello, this is Clay Lowry. Welcome back to Current Account. I'm the host and the executive vice president here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about the key international economic and financial policy issues of the day and try to provide maybe a little bit of a U.S. political or policy angle to them. Today, I would like to discuss the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the implications of it, as well as the recent acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS. But before I begin, let me provide a little bit of a contextual point. I was a senior official at the United States Treasury during the 2007-2008 financial crisis. I learned a number of lessons during that time, but maybe most important was that the initial take on a bank run or a financial crisis is often wrong. Sometimes it is wrong at the margin and sometimes even at the core. So I hope that you will hear from me today a bit of humility and not just a hot take on what happened. With that throat clearing over, let me just start with the Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank is the 16th largest bank or was the 16th largest bank in the United States when it was put into receivership. That became the second largest bank failure based on asset size in U.S. history. SVB, as I always call it, was unique in a few ways. For instance, it had a highly concentrated customer base. I thought it would be important to look at its balance sheet. And as I talk, you will notice a little bit of a game of ping pong as I go through it. So let's get the serve and play. Ping. And start with liabilities. So a bank's balance sheet, the liabilities of a bank are largely, not totally, for simplistic reasons, debt and deposits. So in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the deposits tripled from 2019 to early 2022. Now, in the United States, deposits are protected by insurance through a regulator called the FDIC of up to $250,000. But such a large increase, as we saw in the case of SVB, it coupled with the concentration of their customers, as I noticed before, led to a large increase in non-insured deposits. So deposits basically above the $250,000 level. Pong. We're going to flip over to the asset side of the balance sheet. Now, in a bank, assets are usually loans and derivatives and securities. Securities are things like U.S. Treasury Department bonds or mortgage-backed securities. But for SVB, in this big lead-up of deposits, there was weak loan demand. Probably part of that was due to what was happening with COVID. So SVB took its customer money and plowed it into securities. So something safe like U.S. Treasury bills or bonds. And they took a large share of those bonds and they put them into an account called holding to maturity. Now, what does that mean? So a lot of parts of a bank or a financial service firm, they have to what's called mark to market. And that means that they have to value the asset based on what the market values it at. But if they hold it to maturity, it's basically going to be just what is that bond going to pay? So if the bond's going to pay 1% interest over five years, that's what it's worth. And that becomes important because the Federal Reserve, starting in March of 2022, began to raise interest rates. And they raised them at the fastest increase we saw in 40 years. Now, when you raise interest rates, that means that new bonds are going to be issued at a higher yield. So instead of 1%, it would be at 3% or 4%. Well, when you basically, the yield goes up, the price of the bond goes down. 
There's just kind of bond mathematics. If you hold to maturity, it doesn't really matter because basically you're just going to get out what you said you were going to. But if you don't and you sell them, you have to sell it at a discount. So the bond is not worth as much as it once was. This is usually referred to as unrealized because it's paper. It hasn't been sold. Loss. And when you hold it to maturity, you don't have to account for that. Whereas part of your book, the mark-to-market part, you would have to account for it. So in SVB's case, they did not have to account for it because they were in the hold-to-maturity account. Ping, back to liabilities. In the fourth quarter of 2022, a number of customers began to pull money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Deposits fell significantly, not precipitously, but significantly. In order to pay these deposits, you had to need cash, you got to pay your depositors. SVB had to raise some capital. Pong. And we go back to the asset side of the balance sheet. Their assets they needed to sell in order to get this cash included those securities that were being held to, held to maturity. Once they sold those maturities, then they had to realize the losses that they had actually been having that were paper losses. This quickly became a problem because customers could see that their assets were not nearly as sound as they once looked. They had not hedged against this risk. And so they then said, I need to take my money out. And that's what became what is essentially a bank run. The bank run didn't seem to come from the things that had been discussed back after the 2008-2009 crisis, or at least to a certain extent, which were, are banks holding enough capital or do they have enough liquidity or liquidity on their balance sheet? In the case of SVP, they seem to have capital and liquidity that hit the ratios that the regulators actually look for. But what they had not taken into account was just an old-fashioned interest rate risk. And that seemed to be the big problem. So on March 10th, the FDIC, the Treasury Department, and the Fed stepped in to basically put SVB into receivership. That basically means that they are under the control of the FDIC. They paid off the insured depositors, but they also then said, we will pay off the uninsured depositors. And they did that by basically saying that They believed by not doing that, they would create a systemic risk to the financial system. Now, in the case of SVP, well over 90% of their depositors were uninsured. So that meant that now, not only those that were clearly insured, but those that are not insured were going to get paid out. The other things that happened that weekend were another bank, significantly large and a little bit different than SVP called Signature Bank also was put into receivership by the FDIC. That turns out to be the third largest banking failure in the United States. And the Federal Reserve opened up liquidity lines so that others that have assets, collateral such as treasury bonds, can put those assets against the Fed for liquidity purposes. Before I talk about some of the fallout, let me move quickly to Credit Suisse. So one thing that's important to note is Credit Suisse and SVP are very, very different financial institutions. Credit Suisse has existed for 160 to 170 years, considered a, I guess, venerable institution, widely held customers, 
So it's it's kind of hard to conflate what happened at SVP with what happened at Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse had dealt with a number of problems over the last few years. And in 2022, there was a pretty significant outflow of funds from the bank, though they had seemed to stabilize as we moved into 2023. During the same week that Silicon Valley Bank was getting into trouble, one of Credit Suisse's largest investors was seen as essentially in public giving a vote of no confidence to Credit Suisse. I'm not sure that is what they necessarily intended to do, but that was the way it was seen. This catalyzed an outflow from Credit Suisse, both in terms of deposits as well as in terms of value, the market value. So on March 16th, so just a few days after the Silicon Valley Bank had gone down, the Swiss National Bank tried to shore up Credit Suisse with a $50 billion liquidity line. In essence, this essentially failed, and Credit Suisse's share price fell even further. Finally, on March 19th, under duress, Credit Suisse was acquired by UBS for $3 billion. UBS is a large institution. It was Credit Suisse's biggest competitor. The hope was that 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 would stem the bleeding. A side note is that one part of the deal on UBS and Credit Suisse is a very technical one, which is that there are bonds that are considered to be subordinated debt. So they're not the most senior debt, but it's not equity either. Their nickname is AT1 bonds. And the Swiss authorities, when they put this deal together, basically wiped out those bonds. So in other words, usually what happens in a case like this is the equity holders are the first to be wiped out. Wiped out basically means that they get nothing on the dollar. Then later, bondholders start to get something as well. So it's a cascading effect. In this case, the equity holders were allowed to get some money out on the dollar. So in other words, uh, a percentage. Whereas the AT1 bondholders, the subordinated debt, were not allowed to do that. Now, this had kind of two effects. One is in broader circles, this was seen as kind of going against the way that bankruptcies usually would work. That then, of course, puts pressure on AT1 bonds, which a number of banks around the world hold. Now, I think the counter to that was from the Swiss, which is that this was just a kind of a key feature that is built into the Swiss contracts, which is unique to Switzerland, but that doesn't mean that there weren't others that were worried about it. And so this kind of goes into a separate point, which is how do you think about contagion? Contagion from Silicon Valley Bank or contagion from something as technical as AT1 bonds. I mentioned earlier that there were lessons to be learned from the financial crisis from 2007, 2008. One of them is that you're not always sure exactly where contagion is going to come from. So in the United States, is the contagion, if there's any, going to be related to regional banks, banks that have large percentage of deposits as uninsured, banks that have unrealized gains or losses on their held to maturity assets? And have they been hedging against them in a proper risk management way? For others, it might be a focus on AT1 bonds. But for others also, it may just be that fear and speculation become very important, more important even than data. Now, for policymakers and regulators, they're trying to figure this out and be vigilant about it and make sure that 
they tried to stem that type of fear by sound measures. It's not easy. And I actually have a lot of empathy for those that are trying to figure these things out as we go forward. So let me talk about what I think are a couple of implications of this, particularly from a political side. But first, there's a one very important implication, which is the economic implications. As banks have been put under pressure, there's a concern that this could harm credit creation. And credit creation could then therefore come back and harm the economy. At the same time, the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and the Swiss National Bank have been very concerned about inflation. So one way to fight inflation is to raise interest rates. But of course, if you raise interest rates, that could harm their overall economy. So just it happens during the same time frame, the ECB met, they raised rates by 50 basis points. The Federal Reserve raised rates by 25 basis points, as did the United Kingdom. And then the Swiss National Bank raised rates by 50 basis points. In some respects, all of that was to say is we still need to fight inflation while at the same time keeping an eye on financial stability. As my colleague Robin Brooks has done very recently, he put together a piece to try to think about the balance of getting this right. And it's very difficult. But how do you also make sure you're fighting inflation while not sending your economy into a bad situation because of problems in the credit markets? I think that Robin comes out in the end was saying that this is going to be balanced and we have a ways to go before we exactly understand the implications. The second thing that I think on the implications front is the lessons to be learned going forward. And we're going to see that in this coming week because the key regulators from the Treasury Department, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve will be testifying before the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee. I think there's going to be three areas that they'll be looking into. Area one is the role of deposit insurance. Is the $250,000 cap the right cap? Does it need to be raised? Does it need to be some sort of a blanket guarantee? These are questions. How do you pay for something like that? These are questions that will have to be answered. Second is the issue of regulation. And so let me be clear. Regulation is essentially setting the rules. There's a reason I'm saying it that way. Because there are some that believe that there was a rollback in regulations for middle-sized banks like Silicon Valley Bank back in 2018. And so that actually harmed the regulation based on capital, liquidity standards, basically prudential measures. That is something that should be looked at. Should we claw that law back as a mistake that was made back in 2018? The third area is on supervision. So supervision is not the setting of the rules. It is the overseeing of those rules. So Silicon Valley Bank was being overseen by financial regulators in the United States. Right now, everybody is saying there were clear risk management strategies or risk management failures by Silicon Valley Bank during this time frame. So the question will be, well, if it is so clear, then why is it that not only did the risk managers miss it, but the supervisors missed it as well. So those are some of the questions we'll be seeing. Unfortunately, some of it will become politically heated, and we will hopefully get some more sunshine as opposed to just heat. But only time will tell on that front. 
So now it's time for the three, two, one. These are my three takeaways from today's podcast. Two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports fact. Three things that I'd take away are first, Silicon Valley Bank's downfall may have been due to strange aspects of its assets and liabilities. Second, Credit Suisse's downfall also may be unique because of some of the problems that this institution has had over the years. And third, while each of those cases may be unique and of its own right, that does not mean that there are not other issues to be looked at. And that is what I think regulators, policymakers, and investors are all trying to do right now. The two things I'm looking forward to. First is the hearings on Capitol Hill this week with senior executives from the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department, and the FDIC to hopefully provide greater light on what exactly has happened in the United States, at least. Next is what's actually happening in financial markets. Is stability reached or do we continue to see volatility? And only time will tell with that. And now let me talk about my one sports fact of the week. I kind of didn't think I would talk about this issue, but the excitement was too much and my disappointment was also too much. And that was with the World Baseball Classic. So what is the World Baseball Classic? The World Baseball Classic is the equivalent of the World Cup of Baseball. Now, it doesn't have any of the history or the pageantry or even the love that the World Cup has in soccer or, frankly, even in rugby or cricket or many other sports. But the World Baseball Classic was in its fifth time that it's done it, which started in 2006. It's done every four years. When it first started, it was almost seen as an exhibition where different countries put teams out and they play against each other. But now you see some of the best stars of baseball around the world are all trying to play, and they all care very much about it. And so we saw, again, very good teams from Cuba, Venezuela, the Netherlands, all trying to win this event. In the end, Japan won for the third time of the five that have been held. The other two winners, the United States won once and the Dominican Republic won once. In the final, Japan beat the United States in what turned out to be a thrilling final as three-time MVP of the American League in the United States, Mike Trout, struck out against his teammate and one-time MVP and probably the only person we've seen, well, in my lifetime, who is both a great pitcher and a great hitter, which is Shohei Otani from Japan. Maybe more importantly, besides how exciting that was, is that viewership in the United States was up by 70%. It was up by 40% in Korea, 45% in Canada, and 100% in Mexico. We don't have the numbers yet, but my guess is it was way up in Japan as well. This seems to me to suggest that now the best players are trying to win this thing. The audience is way up. It just means that it's becoming a bigger and bigger event going forward. So I was really glad to see that. And even though I obviously was rooting for the United States against Japan, but all my salutes go to Japan for their great win. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.